0: Andrew, back in uh, 2008, in the middle of nowhere, Texas, um, was helping this uh, new Christian camp sort of get off the ground. Uh, and these, all these Christian camps and retreat centers and things like what we went, where we went to fall retreat are all in like, the middle of nowhere, no cell service, all that kind of stuff. Probably for good reason, but also probably because land is cheap in this place. I don't know any of that stuff. But anyway, Andrew was administrating, helping get this uh, Christian camp get off Uh, the ground. And during the summer, there was this one week, it was especially really terrible. This like monsoon rain came down for several days. You know what I'm talking about? Like drops so hard that like when you walk through, it it feels like it's knocking you into the ground, right? Like just crazy uh, hard drops. And and this is one of the the, like kid camps where the kids actually stay there like all week and they like live in the cabins and they've got like leaders and stuff like that and uh, that are with them all day and taking all their activities and stuff. And uh, The camp was so new, the trails hadn't, like, had gravel on them yet, and so they were just mud, and it was, like, slippery and stuff, and so Andrew, being, like, one of the administrators was constantly getting calls about kids falling and getting hurt and all this stuff, It was just this really, really long day uh, of just one thing after another, all this storm crazy happening, having to make sure leaders uh, and students don't get lost in the woods in this crazy rainstorm and, like, have to fight a bear or something, Um, but at the end of the day, finally storm's still happening, but like the day's over. Campers and their leaders are back in their cabins, and they're they're headed off to sleep. And Andrew's uh, sitting there, going, "You know, the last time I ate something was at breakfast. Like it was just kind of one of those days. You ever have one of those days that's been so crazy that you like forgot to eat meals? I don't forget to eat meals, but maybe you have. Um, anyway, Andrew did that day. He was just so busy and so constant that that he had, had hadn't eaten since breakfast, and so he thought. What do I do for food? And so he remembered that just a few miles into town there was a McDonald's. And I guess if you're stuck in the middle of nowhere, internally choice, that's what you got to do. McDonald's is gross, by the way. I'm sorry if you like it, but you're wrong. And, um, and so he decides, even though this crazy storm's happening, he's going to drive into town and go get some McDonald's. And so on his way in, he's driving into town to get to this McDonald's. And the rain's so, like, so hard that he can barely see past like his vehicle, like the end of the front of his vehicle. He can barely see past it. Uh, so he's driving along, all of a sudden he hears this loud sort of bang, and he realizes, oh, I've blown a tire. And so he pulls off the side of the road and gets out, and sure enough, he's blown a tire. And so he's trying to figure out what to do. He goes, he finds a spare tire, and then he realizes he doesn't have any of the tools that you need to change the tire. And so here he is in the middle of nowhere, checks his cell phone, no cell service because middle of nowhere, has no cell service. He's a few miles back from camp, not quite to town yet. Torrential rain, no tools to change his tire. He's like, oh no, what do I do? I'm like stuck, that's it. There's gonna be some like clown or something come out of the woods, I'm gone, right? And so he starts, I mean, I it'd be terrible to try and walk like several miles back. It's terrible to walk several miles anyway, but it's especially during the rain. And uh, so he starts trying to flag down vehicles like as they're coming, which is kind of dangerous because of the rain, but he's trying to flag down vehicles. They just all kind of keep flying by him. Thirty-five, forty minutes goes by. Nobody stopped. So he just gets back in his vehicle, sopping wet, miserable. He's sitting there he goes, What am I going to do? I guess I could sleep here until like the rain stops or morning comes or something. And then maybe I can find, you know, something else from there. And he said, well, maybe, maybe I, just, I just need to pray. So he starts praying. By the time he finishes, he, he opens his eyes and he sees uh, headlights in his rearview mirror, and somebody's pulled up behind him, and somebody knocks on the window, which I'd be like, right? Uh, there's that clown I was talking about. Uh, and uh, no, it was, it, was, it was an older man, was early 60s or something, knocking on the window saying, hey, do you need help? And so Andrew uh, jumps out, and he says, he says, yeah, man, I've, I've I'm blowing a tire, and I don't have the tools to, to fix it. I've got a spare, but I don't have the tools to fix it. And the guy says, I think I've got something. He goes back to his vehicle. He grabs, grabs tools, comes over, and he doesn't have the right size for Andrew's vehicle. He says, well, I don't live too far from here. You just want to hop in and come with me uh, back and let me get tools and stuff? Rule number one, when you're inside a robust ranger, don't get in a vehicle with him. Right? Rule number one. Andrew's like, sure, why not? And uh, hops in the vehicle with this guy, and they start heading to this guy's house. And so they're striking up conversation, and... And uh, at some point, Andrew says, like, oh, I was out here headed toward McDonald's because I hadn't had dinner yet. And the guy was like, well, let's go by McDonald's then. Uh, Andrew's like, cool, awesome. So they go by McDonald's, and as they're pulling at McDonald's, the the man says, says, man, 18 years ago, there wasn't but one restaurant in this town. Now there's, like, four of them that stay open until midnight, you know, and, which is not that big of a deal, really. But for small towns, that's a big deal, right? Uh, and, uh, and, and Andrew's like, oh, okay, that's cool that you guys have grown some, and they're like, they, get out of McDonald's or driving down a little further, and they pass the high school, and Andrew asks, like, hey, you know, how big's the school, and that kind of thing, just kind of carrying on conversation, and the old guy says, yeah, 18 years ago, there wasn't a whole lot of, uh, there wasn't a lot of students there, but now it's kind of blowing up, this area's growing, so there's a lot of students there, and that kind of thing, and Andrew's like, okay, cool, and they're, they're kind of starting to pull into this guy's house, and he, or area, and he sees that this small plot of land has, like, this barbed wire fence around it, and then in the middle of it is just this pop-up camper, not a house, pop-up camper. Now, I mean, you're in—it's in the middle of nowhere, like Texas. People live in all kinds of weird things. Um, so he's this guy's living in this pop-up camper. Uh, as they're pulling up, and uh, Andrew says, uh, "Have you have you always lived you know here?" And uh, and the guy said, "Well, I did until about 18 years ago." And uh, Andrew goes, "Oh yeah, what uh, where'd you go 18 years ago?" Um, he goes, "Well, I just got out of uh, 18 years in prison for manslaughter." Well, let me go get my tools and hops out of the car. And uh, and so Andrew's like. What? I'm in the vehicle of a stranger who was just in prison for almost two decades, and I'm like at his weird, like pop-up, like barbed wire prison, whatever this is. Yeah, this is gonna be one of those Saw movies all over again. All right, uh, and uh, and so he's he's losing his mind. Andrew's freaking out. The guy comes back with the tools, hops in, and it's like, all right, let's go. And Andrew's like, oh, okay. And uh, they start they start heading back, and they make it all the way back to the vehicle, and. And the guy hops out with the tools, and in like two minutes, changes the tire, and says, "He's sorry, right, man. I'm I'm glad I was able to help you out. I gotta go." And Andrew's like, "Hey, can I give you any money? Thanks for helping me, and that kind of thing." And the guy said, uh, "said No, I'm good. I don't I don't need any help. I just or I don't I don't need any money or anything. I just wanted to help you." And he hops in his vehicle and he drives off. And Andrew, he thought, "You know what? That that went a couple different ways. One, I wasn't really expecting that guy to have spent almost two decades." Uh, In prison, but then once I learned that, I was expecting the worst. But yet, this guy was not what you would expect it of someone who had spent almost two decades in prison. He was gentle. He was kind. He was gracious. He was helpful. All of the things that you wouldn't necessarily, typically, apply to someone who had been in prison for that long. Um, We get a little bit. We get a little bit taken back whenever we meet people and they're different than what we expected. Like, have you ever met somebody and initially you have one thing in your mind about that person, and as you got to know them, it was completely different? We did it all the time. Often, it's whenever um, we, we expect someone to be like a, a villain in a story or something like that, and then they actually turn out to be a hero, right? Or if we're expecting something good of someone, and then they don't come through, or they don't show up, or whatever it is, like, our just all of that kind of but takes us by surprise when that sort of stuff happens, which is why, which is why we're so outraged in stories of corruption, right? Because typically it's people who, sh- who are in power, who are in places that uh, should be doing good things, but then they corrupt stuff. And it's also why we're captivated by stories uh, of underdogs, right? We love a good underdog story um, because we want the unexpected to happen, but we're also surprised by that. And we love that element of surprise, uh, th- this response is really not anything new. Uh, we expect certain people, whenever you see them, you expect certain things of them, and you have conversations with certain people, you expect those conversations often to go some, uh, certain ways. In Jesus' day, 2,000 years ago, it was really the same sort of thing. So we're in Luke chapter 10 tonight. In Luke chapter 10, and we're going to look at a lot of you uh, are familiar with this story, some of you aren't, and that's okay. Uh, the story of the, or the parable of the Good Samaritan, but I want us to grab the context. So we're, Um, it's important when you're studying Scripture, when you're reading the Bible, that you understand the context of what you're reading, okay? You can take any phrase, any individual verse, pull it out of the Bible, and make it mean anything you want it to, but that's not not how we use the Bible. We want to know the context that the verse is found in so that we understand what the the author was trying to mean here. And so Jesus uh, is hanging out uh, with people. He's doing some teaching and that sort of thing. And let's read, uh, verse, uh, starting in verse 25 in chapter 10 of the book of Luke. And behold, a lawyer, let me stop real quick. My translation says lawyer. I'm not sure if you have a different translation of what it says. But this is not what we think of. Like, when I say lawyer, most of you, because we live in Alabama, you think of Alexander Schnara, right? Like, <laughs> that's immediately what everybody thought of, right? I mean, you know I'm right. Anyway, <laughs> so that's not what this is talking about. This is not that kind of lawyer. The, the actual word, literally translated, could be lawyer, but it really means more teacher of the law. This was a person who studied and taught the Jewish religious laws. And so they were, in a sense, a lawyer, and they were an expert on the law, the religious laws and that sort of thing, but they didn't, like, go to court and, like, Alexander of the place, right? Like, that's not, that's not what they did. This was somebody who, who understood fully the, what we know as the Old Testament laws and taught them uh, to people. So anyway... So behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. This is Jesus. He's trying to test Jesus. Rule number one, don't do that. Um, Saying, teacher, this is, Jesus was considered a rabbi, a teacher, and even by those who weren't like disciples. And so he said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, With all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So this man wasn't really coming to Jesus to learn anything. In this this day and age, teachers like this uh, teacher of the law and Jesus, a, a, a rabbi, often their discourses, their public debates, so to say, would go like this. It would start with a, a question, usually kind of a broad question, and then they would go back and forth just asking questions about this particular subject until they would, they would bore down to one specific sort of thing. This is how the, these teachers would dialogue. They would just question, 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 trying to trip up the other person or get to a point where they either disagreed or did agree on something. And so this guy is expecting the same of Jesus. He asks a question. And then Jesus responds with a question. The guy gives the answer uh, to Jesus' initial question and is expecting th- this conversation to continue on in this, uh, in this way. And so the guy gives his answer, and it's, uh, it's a little bit of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus 19, uh, a little bit of the Shema, this, this whole idea that you've got to love God with everything that you have and you have to love your neighbor as... Uh, as yourself. But this is how Jesus responds in 28. He says, uh, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So this guy's expecting this conversation to go on for a while. He's expecting some like question, answer, question, question, answer, question, answer sort of thing back and forth. And Jesus goes, yep, you said the right answer. You should do that thing. You should do what you just said. Uh, <laughs> and the guy uh, was sort of taken aback by this. And so uh, and so he he goes to push in he goes to push in a little further, and he says in verse 29, and he, desiring to justify himself, so he's trying to justify why he even stood up, get to the final point that he was trying to get to to prove that he was kind of smarter and knew more than Jesus, um, trying to justify himself, and said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I always think of Mr. Rogers, won't you be my neighbor? Right? Anyway, uh, that was a little sidetrack side with J.J., and so um, so this guy is taken aback that Jesus is engaging but not fully um, and Jesus kind of starts; it continues to sort of flip this guy's conversation and things he says over um, upside down. And, um, and so he asks this question, and who is my neighbor? And this day, this guy, remember, he studied the Old Testament law, which said you need to love your neighbor and you need to treat your neighbor as yourself, right? That was a part of... Uh, the Old Testament law, and so this guy and his um, cohorts, they studied, okay, well, what does it mean, neighbor? The Hebrew word literally just means close one, like someone who lives close to you, right? But their interpretation of that in this time was a little broader than that, which is good. Um, This guy is expecting a specific answer from Jesus about this, because in his mind, in the context of love your neighbor as yourself, the word neighbor means anyone who is devout who is a devout Jew, anyone who is a devout Jew is considered your neighbor, and you should be kind to them, you should treat them as yourself, you should love them as yourself, but anybody else you can disregard, it's fine, they wouldn't say that, but that's what they mean, anybody who's devout religiously, a devout religious Jew, they're your neighbor, you should love them, show them kindness, all that kind of stuff, treat them well, but everybody else is fine, you have no obligation to anybody else. This is what he's expecting, Jesus to respond with something like that. But that's not, that's not what happens. Let's look at what Jesus said there, starting in verse 30. And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by uh, on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came uh, to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Let's stop there for now. And so Jesus starts to tell this parable, which is a fictional story, but has a, uh, these are, these are uh, fictional stories that have a moral meaning. They come to a moral point. Jesus, this is a big way that Jesus taught was using the context of the day, the, the things that were around the people that they would understand, and using them as illustrations to make a point. And, uh, and so this is, this is not a real story. But it was something that was common in this day. See, there was only one road that went from Jerusalem to Jericho, and the terrain was really rocky and rough, and there were a lot of thieves and robbers and things that would hang out in those areas and would come out and rob people. And so this, this to them would sound like something that would be like on the nightly news if they had such a thing back then, right? it would just be like, oh, well, that happened again over there on that road. Nobody should be on that road. That's silly. Um, But what's interesting about what Jesus does here is he takes this common scenario, this man who's who's been robbed, he's been beaten, he's been stripped, and he's laying there almost dead, basically half dead. This guy's laying there. And then, by chance, a priest comes along finds the man but instead of doing what we would assume priests would do which was help the man the priest sees the guy and does one of the, these numbers right He's, it's kind of like that that time like you guys have been in the vehicle uh, or maybe those of you who are driving now um, you've been in a vehicle with somebody and you pull up to a red light and there's the homeless guy with the sign and you're like eyes forward everyone eyes forward right and you're just like don't look it's not a thing if you ignore it it doesn't exist right that sadly happens often. This is the, that priest was doing the same thing. He saw this guy and tried to ignore him. He moved to the other side of the road. If, if I don't look, it's not real, right? And just kept walking. This was supposed to. Be, this was one of the religious leaders of the day, a priest, some of the most righteous people that existed in that time. And then the second person who come along where this. Guy had been uh, beaten, was half dead and naked. Um, and the next guy that came along was a Levite. And I don't know if that means anything to you, but Levites were, were one of the, the most righteous tribes in Israel. They were really considered some of the most religious. They were set apart, set aside. Uh, and so these are two of, in this guy who was questioning Jesus, in his, in his mind, in his world, and all those listening on to Jesus' teaching, the priest and the Levite would be some of the most religious devout people they could think of. If you're a part of those two uh, sects of people, then you would, you would be one of the most religious people there was. And so you would have to obey the law. And so this being a fictional story, we don't really know the motive of the priest or the Levite, but some of what Jesus is trying to hint at here is, is that notion of the definition of a neighbor, right? And so the Levite and the priest— would walk by and would really feel no obligation to this man because they, didn't, they wouldn't know if he was a devout Jew or not. They wouldn't know. And so since they don't know if he's a devout Jew or not, they have no obligation to help that man. And so then they just keep moving on. So Jesus is kind of pushing in on this cultural misunderstanding of this law of the Old Testament. And then, then he goes on, and Jesus, the, uh, the next... The next verse starts with three words that I think that whenever this, this teacher of the law and the people around heard, all of them like sat up and were nervous. Have you ever been sitting around somebody and they say something and immediately you feel nervous about what they said? You're like, oh no, I can't believe he just said that. What is happening? Can I get out of here? Probably not. Right? Like you ever been in those moments when Jesus says the phrase, "But a Samaritan. This this teacher of the law and all these people, all these Jewish people around, would have immediately been like, "What? Excuse me, right? See, Samaritans were these these people uh, from a town called Samaria, right? Makes sense. Uh, but in the in Israel, they were considered less than. They were considered half breeds. They were not really they were not really Israelites to people like who Jesus was talking to. They were really hated. To the extent that someone like this, this lawyer who's questioning Jesus, someone like him, instead of taking the easy path of going through the town of Samaria, he would actually cross the River Jordan, go up, and then cross back over the river so that he never even had to come close to the town of Samaria. Like, literally, people did that in this day. They hated uh, the Samaritans so much, those who were, who were truly full-blooded uh, Jewish, that they would go around the town, take, go out of their way to not even come close to the town of Samaria because they hated them so much and outcast them so much. Uh, and so when they heard this phrase, but a Samaritan, because they already see that the priest and the Levite, who they thought would be the heroes of this story, are turning out not to be. You're like, oh no, where's this going? Right? And so what does Jesus say? And he says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, which is money, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And so the Samaritan, who whenever Jesus said... But a Samaritan, most of the people listening probably assumed, oh well if the priest and the Levite didn't help this guy, the Samaritan's probably the real villain of this story because those people are terrible so I can't imagine what the Samaritan's about to do to these people. And then all of a sudden as they're listening, the Samaritan becomes the hero of the story. Becomes the one who actually showed mercy and grace and love to this man who's lying in a ditch naked, beaten, and almost dead. The person that that the people listening to Jesus would have assumed was a villain, was actually the hero because he helped this man. And not just helped him as in like found his clothes for him and, and helped him like stand up and walk on his way, but like actually took care of his wounds, put him on his animal, walked him into town, found him a place to sleep, and paid for it all. Like the extra mile or three for this guy, the Samaritan, who they would think was the villain, the bad guy, was actually the ultimate good guy in the story that Jesus... Um, that Jesus was telling here. And so all of, all of these people listening to Jesus, their minds probably just melted. They were like, I don't understand what's happening. Samaritans are good people now? What's happening? Right? And so that's, that's sort of what's going on. And so Jesus finishes, he looks, he looks over at the lawyer, and he comes back to this format of asking questions. And he looks, at, he looks at the lawyer and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell uh, who fell among the robbers. I don't know if you catch the irony here, but he, he goes back and catches one of the early questions, right? The, the lawyer said, well, then who's, who's my neighbor? And he's thinking devout religious, uh, like Jewish people. Jesus lays out this scenario of three men, two of which are devout religious Jews, and one who is considered an outsider, the worst of the worst, lowest of the low. And in the story, Jesus turns and looks at him and goes, which of those three people do you think is actually the good guy? Which of them do you think is the real neighbor? The one who really abided by the Old Testament law? Which one? I just imagine the anger that like welled up in this teacher of law who thought he was going to trip up Jesus, who thought he was like working down this path where Jesus was going to say yeah, you only have to care about people who, who are really Jewish. Everybody else, ah, forget about them. Right? He was fully expecting Jesus to say that and that's not what Jesus said. No, in turn, he has to because in this public discourse, he had to, to then answer Jesus. Uh, and so then he has to say, well, let's look at it. in verse 37. He said, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. He wouldn't even say the Samaritan. He just said the, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise, which was this in the text, it doesn't convey this, but in our world, this would be a full-on drop-the-mic moment, right? Because Jesus now just got this guy to admit that a Samaritan was a good person, and then he told him he needed to go be like the Samaritan, which would have been like insult to injury to this, to this religious leader. And he was like, hey, hey so which one of those three uh, was, really, was really godly? The one who was actually obeying the law, and the guy had to say, well, the Samaritan. And, he, and Jesus would say, you're right. Now go be like him. Drop mic. Walk off right? That's how I imagine it. I have these, these uh, versions of the Bible in my brain that I think are really funny. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Uh, anyway, so Jesus has, uh, has once again, best of these guys, because what Jesus is drilling into is the heart of the matter. Jesus is constantly in all of his teaching, everything that he uh, ever said, he's drilling into the heart of you and me, in the way we think and the way we're supposed to live, because it's not—it's not really about the law. It's really about the heart. This man who studied his whole life, everything he thought about, ate and breathed was this law to try and help, uh, try to try and help himself be righteous before God. Which is, on a surface level, an honorable thing to do, right? He's trying to live it right. He's trying to to live his best life now, right? Like, he's trying to do that, and. Uh, sorry you didn't catch that reference anyway distracted myself and so he's he's trying to to do this everything uh, that he he's trying to figure out right what is it how am i supposed to live what are my obligations right and that's the the question he asked was who is my neighbor you see he wanted to know to an extent what jesus who jesus thought was he wanted a definition of who Jesus thought neighbor meant. Because in his mind, he had a definition of neighbor that was his obligation. He was only obligated to show love and mercy to other people who were like him. In his definition of the word neighbor, he was only obligated to show love to people who were like him. You see, he was, he was asking the question, and what he was ultimately asking was, who exactly do I have an obligation to love and I have to show them love as myself. Is it people who are just in close proximity to me? Is it people who are just like me, show, have the same worldview as me, have the same uh, like core beliefs as me? They're actually right with God, so all these jokers who are still trying to figure it out, I don't really have to show them love and that sort of thing. You see, the question, though, is wrong. Who is my neighbor? That's not the right question. For you and I, the better question is, am I, are you, being a good neighbor, are you actually being neighborly, if you will, is the better question. Not who is my neighbor, who not who am I obligated to show love and mercy to, but are you showing love and mercy to people? Are you loving people around you the way uh, like you would love yourself? See, asking uh, who your neighbor is that gives us a chance to justify not doing what we know we're supposed to do. I mean, if you if you look at yourself and you admit it, right, often we, we, we want to know, okay, what's, what's the requirement? What's the minimum I'm supposed to do, right? If I only have to make this grade on a test, then I'm only striving for that grade. I'm not striving for the other thing, because that's silly. I only have to make this thing, uh, unless you're one of those overachiever people, right? Like most of us, that's like what we're doing. What's the minimum? What am I obligated to do? And then the rest, if it happens, cool. If not, what else, right? Jesus is drilling into this and say it's not about... The minimum. It's not about the actual physical, like, definition of neighbor, because the idea of that is that we are called to love anyone and everyone around us as ourselves. So, asking, am I being a good neighbor, you're asking, am I meeting the needs that I see around me? that I have the ability to meet, right? Those around you who have needs, whatever they are. For the, for the Samaritan, he would come across a guy who needed, who, ne- who needed his wounds tended for, he needed clothes, he needed a place to stay, he needed a place to rest, and somebody to take care of that because he had just been robbed of all his money. The Samaritan wasn't a place to be able to take care of and help do all of those things. So in your life, the people around you, what needs do you see that you have the ability to, to help take care of and help with? That's the question Christians should be asking over and over and over again. What are the needs of those around me that I can actually help with and then do those things? You see, do you remember the question that the teacher of the law asked Jesus at the very beginning, which wasn't really about neighbors. Before he got to the topic of neighbors, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? right? He's trying to earn his way to favor with God. And so the reason Jesus was pushing back on him so much is because he was trying to show this guy that it was not about the law. The law was not what was going to rescue this guy. The the law was not what was going to—him knowing who his neighbor was and only showing love to those people is not what's going to get him eternal life. It's not what's going to rescue him from his brokenness and his sin. For Christians in the room— The point Jesus was making is that loving our neighbors as ourselves, which is anyone and everyone around us, however unlovable or unlikable they are, is evidence of our faith. So showing love to those around us in our world, in our sphere of influence, regardless of how unlovable or unlikable they are, is evidence of our faith, or lack thereof. Some of you in the room, you're not, you're not Christians. You haven't bought into this Jesus thing yet. You've not uh, fully bought into believing that he died on a cross for your sins uh, and all of that. And I hope that you come to a point that you do. Um, but I want you to understand that you can't earn your way to favor with God. It is only through faith in Jesus. And out of that faith comes being able to love your neighbor, which is anyone and everyone around you, as yourself. Let me pray, and then we're going to go into small groups. Father, I... I thank you that you care more about our hearts than you do us following a list of rules and regulations and definitions. Help us all to hear from you and to see those around us who have needs that we are able to meet and that we would step up and meet those needs. Father, Holy Spirit, for those in the room uh, who don't know you yet, I pray that you would continue to draw them in to soften their hearts to know that you love them and you want to rescue them and you want to bring them out of their brokenness. Help us now as we go into small groups to have focused, meaningful conversations uh, on this and how we can live this out practically as we move, as we leave this place. In Christ, I pray. Amen.